When I met clinical psychiatrist Dr. Dan Ingle, MD, it was not in a clinic somewhere with a lab coat. He was actually on the land in Sedona, integrating a wild experience studying under an ayahuascaro down in Peru. Now, he tells some of this story on this podcast, but what was so intriguing to me is someone who was clinically trained in Western medicine, who then went into holistic medicine and then went into indigenous psychedelic plant medicine. And since then, 10 years ago, I've seen him and been alongside him and we've been friends and allies as he's emerged as one of the top medicine doctors for psychedelic medicine and general holistic medicine. He recently published a book called A Dose of Hope about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And this is just a beautiful conversation with one of the great thought leaders in psychedelic medicine, Dr. Dan Ingle, MD. Before we get into our commercials, I just want to mention that if you're interested in sitting with Dr. Dan Ingle, he's going to be leading what he calls a death meditation at our Fit for Service Summit in Sedona, which is absolutely packed. It's our flagship event of the year. So as you listen to this podcast, if you're drawn to meeting and hanging and learning from Dr. Dan Ingle, definitely check that out. Go to fitforservice.com and you'll see the Sedona Summit. We only have a few applications left, so check it out if you're interested. And now a word from our sponsors. First up, we have mud water. Now, mud water, if you're not aware of what this is, has become a staple of my morning ritual. It is a combination of some of the best ingredients on the planet. It's got masala chai. It's got cacao, lion's mane mushrooms, cordyceps mushrooms, chaga mushrooms, turmeric, cinnamon. It is just packed with everything that you want to put in your body to nourish and support this kind of ramp up for the day. Now it's got one seventh the amount of caffeine as coffee. And that's really, as I've talked about in my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, you don't want to start the morning with a bunch of caffeine. Really, you don't. That's for something a little bit later on in the day. But mud water has just the right amount. And the way I like to mud water is I mix a little mud water, I mix a little butter, I mix a little protein, and then sometimes some cashew butter, and I blend it up, and I have this delicious morning drink that I look forward to every single day. And sometimes I'll go back for a second mud water because it just tastes so good. And they didn't bother with putting a bunch of extra sweeteners in there, so you can sweeten it as you like. Maybe you're comfortable with real sugar. Maybe you want stevia. Maybe you want xylitol. Maybe you want monk fruit. Whatever it is, they leave it up to you, which I really appreciate, so they don't overdo it. It's just a phenomenal product, and they really did that by focusing on just creating the very best thing and absolutely doubling down on that very best thing. So I encourage you guys to give it a try. Their customer service is phenomenal. Their ownership is amazing. I know those guys over there, and it's just a great product and a great company, so I highly recommend it. So check it out, mudwater.com amp. Now you spell mudwater, M-U-D, wtr.com slash amp. And if you go to that URL, you'll save $5 off on every Mudwater purchase. Our next sponsor on today's episode is Let's Get Checked. One of the things that's very difficult to understand without actually getting checked is where your hormone levels are. 
whether you're a guy or a girl, it doesn't matter. Hormones are affecting so many aspects of your life from physical performance to sexual performance to even mood. So many things are dependent upon our hormones. And Let's Get Checked is one of the best ways to actually figure this out. They're going to send you a home test kit. There'll be some saliva, a finger prick for blood test, and then you send it in and the clinicians review it. And then once the clinicians review it, let's say you order the male hormone complete test and you'll get testosterone, estradiol, prolactin, free androgen, cortisol, and sex hormone binding globulin, all of which are really important to painting the picture. Recently, my wife got tested, Vilana, and she discovered that there were some tweaks that she needed to make to her hormone profile. It's something that is very important to actually get a handle on and understand if you really want to optimize your performance. So if you're interested, go to trylgc.com slash Aubrey Marcus and use code Aubrey Marcus for 25% off your home test kit. Once again, trylgc.com slash Aubrey Marcus, code Aubrey Marcus for 25% off your home test kit. Next up, we have WonderMed. And WonderMed is a company that I really believe in. I actually invested in this company because I'm a believer in ketamine-assisted therapy. It's been hugely beneficial in my own mitigation of challenges of my own psyche, including my own anxieties and my own depressions and all of the things that come through me. Now, of course, I don't like the labels of clinical diagnoses, but I experience so many of these things that so many of us experience. And ketamine has been an unbelievable tool in helping give me the perspective to actually see and understand where these different challenges are coming from. And WonderMed is just a great platform where if you're eligible, so you call them up and you meet with a clinical practitioner and that person will screen you. And if you're eligible for ketamine-assisted therapy, then you get your in-home ketamine treatment package. And it's this beautiful box. It's got an eye mask. It's got a blood pressure gauge. It's got all kinds of different things, as well as the ketamine lozenges that dissolve in your mouth and give you access to really what is the first treatment that's available in the psychedelic medicine suite at scale. And I think nobody is doing it better than WonderMed is doing it right now. So as you listen to this podcast and if you've heard about it, I encourage you to do some additional research and also reach out to WonderMed and see if you're the right fit for ketamine therapy. So go to wondermed.com and you can use the code Aubrey uh, and that'll let people know that you came from the podcast. So use the code Aubrey and check out wondermed.com. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Dan Ingle, MD. Dr. Dan Ingle, here we are. Once again, brother. Once again. Well, so what was it, 12, 13 years ago when I found you in that <laughs> dusty little clay hut out in Sedona, <laughs> healing from doing way too much ayahuasca out in the jungle? Yeah. Yeah. You asked me after we had started having a great conversation, yeah. <clears throat> you asked me if I wanted to get on a podcast. And I asked you, what's a podcast? <laughs> and you said, wow, you've been out here a long time. <laughs> First yeah. time I'd ever known about a podcast. Uh -huh. and what was even happening in the outer world. Yeah, yeah, what a propitious moment that was where I met you and Anahata and Porangi and, uh, and really opened me up to so many different paths. Obviously, I'd already been on the psychedelic medicine path, which is one of the things that we connected on. 
but there were so many other modalities and ways of thinking and mm-hmm. from breath work to ecstatic dance to you know so much that's just a regular part of my life all came from and key allies like yourself and everyone i mentioned that all came from that moment yeah and sedona too Sedona too, right? Yeah, was like, first like drew me Sedona. out to Sedona. Wow. And then by the second time I went to Sedona, I was like, I got to get a place out here. And now it's like <laughs> my medicine home. Amen, brother. I know. Yeah. Not, not bad. And now here we are. Yeah. Lived a lot of life, done a lot of things. 100%. And for me too, to know you and to meet you then, because um, I was just very content building a hut. <laughs> uh-huh. and, the, and the hut was rebuilding me after coming out of the jungle for a year and uh, didn't have any real vision about coming back out into the world and what that was going to look like. And then our meeting and then the unfolding that happened for each of us through that connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the first time I'd met uh, an MD who had an equally proficient amount of experience and information in psychedelic medicine and also holistic medicine like you were a real unicorn at that time and and it's still and still are in many ways especially because you've just continued to advance Mm -hmm. your understanding of all of those fields Mm -hmm. but back then i mean that was like holy shit this is like this is the future of medicine and i still think you represent this future archetype of medicine where it's like ah cool do what you need to do to get an md because there's some important tools that are Mm. in the toolbox when you can make prescriptions Mm. and they have their place and they have their Mm -hmm. purpose but they are severely limited Mm -hmm. when it comes to a real holistic understanding of human thriving Mm -hmm. yeah amen yeah you're describing the the sacred place at the table for all the medical paradigms all the medical interventions. Yeah, after I broke my neck, I didn't go see my homeopath or my herbalist. <laughs> you know, your acupuncturist was, was <laughs> would not have been able to fucking not deal in with that it. moment. No, after I was stabilized, <laughs> halo screwed into skull. Okay, yeah. then hook me up with needles. I don't need a very thin needle. I more need a screw <laughs> that's right. putting something into my yeah. head cranium. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that kind of like allopathic approach, triage, emergency care medicine. Um, how do we stabilize a crisis situation? How do we use pharmaceuticals in the right way to arrest symptoms that are in that redlined crisis mode, um, stabilize fractures, really hold the, the human hardware system together while the energy body is catching up and many of the associated interventional therapeutics that really help restore accelerated trajectory of full healing because the body will heal itself as long as you you know stabilize it give it the right conditions and then there are things that accelerate and and heal that and make it even uh more robust and ready yeah that's the this is the this is the thing that i think whenever you get almost evangelical with your belief system Mm. where you think that the only way is the way that you do it. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't just happen in medicine. It can happen in fitness. It can happen mm-hmm. in diet. You know, like love Paul Saladino. Mm-hmm. Think he's great. His whole carnivore thing, like a lot of respect. And I think he makes a lot of sense. And of course, Michaela Peterson and different people have had great benefits from moving to this dietary style. But it's like, all right, man, but you got to open your eyes to like, there's some other possibilities here that could be useful for other different situations, 100%. you know, from a keto situation to a vegan situation to a, just kind of like a balanced, high life force energy diet situation. Like it's not just the only thing. And I think it's 
it's great. It's fine to be a specialist, but I don't think it's the time of now. The time of now is actually being a polymath is like finding the best of all of the different fields and then mm -hmm. having the the broadest tool set and also being able to draw connections from each type. Same thing with fitness. You know, when I came in and founded on it, right? There was CrossFit, there was then regular like gym lifting and then Olympic lifting. And then there was strictly kettlebells and everybody was like, our way is the only way. And we're like, no, nah, how about all of it? Mm -hmm. How about a little bit of everything? Mm -hmm. And because that's the way athletes were really training anyways. Mm -hmm. Like when you really looked at it and then top performers are also doing exactly what we're talking about. Like mm -hmm. both of us, you from a you know medical, more clinical side, but me from a spiritual and optimization side, working with literally the best athletes and best performers in the world, mm -hmm. it's always a little bit of everything mm -hmm. that's creating the best outcomes. Yeah, yeah. It's been um, certainly a path for me to walk through these different dogmas. Like I think even when you and I met, I was raw vegan and had been for five years. And that was the prelude for me going down to the jungle, which mm -hmm. is cleaning, 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 clear, clarifying the channel, opening up um, the, the, the vessel, so to speak. And my first diet with Chidiksanango was just volumes of information coming through. Um, but I was also dogmatic against allopathic medicine. Mm. So when- it's like, my, it's like rebelling against your dad. Yeah, I had <laughs> to do that. I had to take it all the way to the other extreme yeah, for sure. because once I found or was graced with the opportunity to experience ayahuasca, I learned more about myself in one weekend than I had in one decade of psychiatry training. Yeah. And I was inspired and I was pissed. I bet. Because it, we had just bastardized as a psychiatric medical field. We'd bastardized all these sacred plant medicine technologies. And it was the first time that I felt hope in like the future of mental health care. If we could be chakarunas, bridges mm. of the, the allopathic field with the traditional medicine field. So I, so I, I bounced over to the dogma against allopath, all, allopathic medicine, so to speak. And um, when I couldn't quite hold that third week of my Chittik Sanango diet and the channel was so open and I hadn't slept for three weeks and I was just vol just downloading volumes of information, so to speak, on integrative psychiatry and medicine at large, um, I blew a circuit. My immune system shut down, got septic, and I wouldn't take antibiotics. So... I came, I came back and tried to figure out like, oh, my, my rationale was like, okay, I'm septic. If this was a hundred years ago, pre-penicillin, what would I do? And your body's like, you'd die, stupid. That's what you would <laughs> well, do. <laughs> I, I, was, I was on that threshold. So I found, um, you know, mega doses of colloidal silver, uh -huh. uh, honey pack poultices, um, some herbal therapies that helped me, you know, get back on um, the healing trajectory. And- and then I was able to go back down to the jungle, finish up that Chittik diet. So you actually moved through that, you moved through that portal without ever using antibiotics. Yeah. You fought your way through it. Yeah. That's bold. It, yeah, it was probably a little reckless in the past. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like with past you kind of mindset. reckless, Dan? No, you don't well, push the edges at all. It's good to know how far we can Dr. go, right? Dr. Conservative. <laughs> yeah. What is it uh, like? Um, I think Terrence McKenna describes the definition of a shaman. And I would not categorize myself at that. Um, but the definition of the shaman is the one in the community that goes to the edge of the known, jumps off into the abyss, 
has an experience, comes back and tells everybody what happened. Mm-hmm. And um, there has been that kind of just inclination to see what's on the other side of the known. Yeah. And so 15 years ago, when I started this path of ayahuasca apprenticeship and learning about these different medicine technologies, there wasn't much of a script. And I don't think I would have wanted to follow anybody else's script anyway. Um, I think it's good to get different comparatives, like uh, you know Richard Evans Schulte's uh, experiences in the deep Amazon. Like if you if you watch that uh, documentary, Embracing the Serpent. Oh yeah, it's good. It's so good, and you just see kind of like the first uh, exploration mm. of the deep medicine process, where she comes from, or where the medicines come from. Mm-hmm. There's something really sacred about being able to work with the uh, the lineage holders mm-hmm. of those ways, like El Dragon, mm-hmm. recently with our our time in Soltara. And also, to be careful, you got cursed. I did. You got cursed. Yeah. That, and this is something that I don't I don't like to talk too much about because I think there's also, of course, as we know, when the mind gets an idea, you can start believing all kinds of things and the belief mm-hmm. in those things can create a reality in mm-hmm. which you actually believe that you're cursed and then you need some external help to actually relieve you of this condition. But however, I've seen it, I saw it with Whitney and I've told that story many times mm-hmm. and you experienced it as well where there are shamans who you would call them sorcerers, I suppose, or brujos, mm-hmm. yeah which is like the male version of a witch, but not a witch in like the awesome way that we sometimes use the word not, these not days. Not Glinda, the good witch in no, the world. No, exactly. <laughs> um, but you experience some, you know, some dark medicine. And so explain what that was doing. And this is just a general caveat, like be mindful. There's, there's those that are looking to heal you and those that are looking to eat you. Mm. And it's just like the jungle. And it, mm. you don't even have to apply your own morality and say they're mm-hmm. bad or good. It's like, is the is the jaguar bad or good? Well, it depends on if you're a fucking taper. <laughs> right. If you're a taper, that's bad. And taper is <laughs> like a little anteater, yep. a little animal that digs around for ants. Mm-hmm. Like a jaguar is a fucking menace. It's mm-hmm. a villain. Mm-hmm. But if you're like another cool jaguar, it might mm-hmm. be like, ooh, sexy. Yeah. That's hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Right, so it, it, it's all perspective. Perspective. At that point. Um, and some of the teachers or, or those that come into our lives um, to to be reflections of our own power and our own integrity and our own value system. Sometimes those medicine teachings come in really uncomfortable ways. And I went down really naive. Uh, I went down, I, I was coming out of 25 years of schooling, you know, up through college, med school, residency fellowships. And in that Western kind of orientation to education, um, we apply for a position, particularly med school, residency, and fellowships. You apply for a position and you try and let the governing board or the admissions council, let you want them to know why you're going to be the best applicant. Yeah. And so it's kind of an extraction. We could maybe think of it as like a self-promotion model. Mm-hmm. And I had that. I wasn't aware that I had that, but I still had that as my orientation to ayahuasca apprenticeship. So when I went down, I first studied with the guy who's largely regarded as the king of the hill in ayahuasca shamanism and the Shipibo lineage. And I went to study with him, had heard amazing things. And uh, I'm high as a kite. 
and, and I'm looking for a teacher because mm-hmm. I'm looking for a mentor along these paths and I'm willing to go all in. Yeah. And so in the midst of a ceremony, I had pre-meditated this kind of uh, exchange, I, I, although I didn't know how it was going to unfold. I made a little mesa and I'm super high in Aya space and it's in the middle of the ceremony and I kind of like crawl over to his little mat and my broken English, uh, my broken Spanish and I'm trying to English translate essentially like I would like to be your, your student. But the way it came out is tu es mi maestro, you're my teacher. Mm-hmm. And he goes, huh? <laughs> and I said, and I repeated it, tu es mi maestro. And he goes, huh? And I presented my little mesa and proceeded to go back to my mat. And then I was there for uh, a deep, uh, my first diet. And I was there for a month. And then he kind of ignored me for the, the the rest of the month that I was there. And then there was a lot of other things and it was clear that it wasn't like the right connection. Mm. But it was only months later, once I found a different teacher and there was a whole lot of things that led me to leave that original place and not study more fully with the original guy. Mm-hmm. But it was only months later that I realized just the audacity and my privilege to walk into a sacred space that had been held for lineage and years and years of an unbroken line of ayahuasca shamanism for me to walk in and demand that this guy be my teacher. Mm -hmm. I could tell in retrospect how that came off. And and I was reading Wade Davis's book, uh, One River at the time when it dawned on me. And Wade Davis talks about the colonialization that happened when the white man goes down into the Amazon as an extractive orientation towards um, the, the ownership of natural resources. First, it was for rubber. And you see that in Embracing the Serpent, mm. like just the atrocities. First, it was for rubber, then it was for oil, and now it's for ayahuasca. And I was just continuing that like extractive mindset as mm. opposed to saying like, wow, I really appreciate how you orchestrate the field. I would love mm. to learn from you. Would you accept me and have me as a student? Right. Totally different orientation. So the choques and the blockages and that kind of like brujudio um, that happened as a result may have been related to now that um, I had placed this little mesa together. I had said, you're my teacher. And there's something when somebody's holding a diet, it's kind of like um, the elder holding the fire for somebody on the vision quest on the mountain. And for those people who are wondering, a diet is also called a dieta. It's where you're in deep spiritual contact with sometimes a psychoactive plant, sometimes a non-psychoactive plant, doesn't even necessarily need to be a plant, but you spend your every waking minute as much as you can of the day isolating yourself and focusing your thought and your consciousness to interact with that plant or that energy that you're looking for to bring that energy home inside your energetic field. Mm -hmm. And so this is a technology they use, which they learn ikaros, they learn how to use the medicine of whatever they've been in contact with, their dieta, and then offer that as part of their medicine bag. So mm-hmm. when we reference diet, just for people who don't know, that's yeah. what we're talking about. Not yeah. talking about raw vegans or anything like that. <laughs> Although it is a pretty restrictive food diet that you go on just to stay yeah. really clear. Yeah, yeah, good description. Um, beautiful description of the of the dieta. And, and when we slow our metabolic system, our psychologic system, 
our energetic system down to the pace of nature, then we can make more direct communion with the natural world and listen to the teachings, the medicine, receive the medicine of the particular plant that we're dieting. Mm. <clears throat> and so in that process, I, I have this extractive orientation. I present something that are my own sacred objects to this person and demand that he be my teacher. Um, well, there can be, just like Yoda says to Luke Skywalker, there's the light side of the force and then there's the dark side of the force. And um, there are those uh, that will take advantage of somebody like me in a naive position so that if I'm making an energetic connection with somebody who's holding my diet, that person also has kind of like ownership of my diet, mm -hmm. can actually harvest the energy that I'm receiving through the plants for his own medicine basket. Mm. It's kind of like a siphoning off of the energetic body. Vampiric. It's a bit vampiric. And I didn't realize that that was in place for years. And it was actually, so how it manifested just, I was actually even drinking ayahuasca with you while that was still in place. And you actually would not be able to actually interact with the, the light of the medicine. Mm -hmm sometimes for the majority of the, like the lights, the candles would be lit back in the Maloka mm -hmm. and you're like, yep, nothing yet. It'll come later, you know, maybe, maybe right. three, four or 5 a.m. or something like right. that. I'll get a little taste of it when, right. but in this, in this framework, and I know this sounds crazy and obviously understand that this Dr. Dan Engel is a medical doctor and a psychiatrist <laughs> here. So yeah. like understand that we're not prone to this woo-woo nonsense unless we've actually felt it and experienced, experienced it. And in this experience, what is for sure is that you had that block. And then what we surmise, although we haven't experienced this directly, is that that energy, and this is what the lore of ayahuasca explains, is that energy can be harvested. Mm -hmm. That the un, unutilized surplus energy and experience of all the light that could come from the medicine can be actually harvested mm -hmm. non-locally through you know, the interconnected field. Mm -hmm by the person who placed the blockage. Yeah. And I didn't, I wasn't conscious that this blockage was there. I was conscious that after this exchange happened, um, to your point, I didn't have any visual experiences in the medicine space. And if they came, they were mild. And if they came, they were well after the ceremony even closed. So I'm, and this was happening for years. <clears throat> and then I just happened to be um, at the Temple of the Way Light and Donald, mutual friend, mm -hmm. he and I um, stopped by the Belen market and picked up some mapachos. And uh, we, and I had never worked with toy, which is also datura or mm. angel's trumpet. And it's a pretty powerful medicine. Um, but there, there was a draw to working with it and it was rolled in tobacco leaf. And that night I had a mapacho with toy and it will imbue this very lucid dream state. And in that dream, that night, first night we got to the temple, Don Howard comes to me in the dream time, had never seen him in dreams before. And um, clear as day, looks straight at me and says, you have a blockage. You need to, it's from one of your old teachers and you need to take care of that while you're here. <laughs> and then bounced out of the dream. It was that clear, that direct. And, and it was notable, so the next morning, I mentioned this to Matthew who runs the Temple of the Way Light. And um, 
I, I mentioned to him the dream time. He goes to Don Francisco, who was their kind of head shaman. And uh, we were going to sit that night. So he had kind of like let Don Howard or let uh, Don Francisco know um, that there may need to be some kind of extra work potentially to mm. support me. So Don Francisco, in the middle of that night ceremony, he comes around as they do. They'll kind of work the circle and, and you receive Icaros from each of the facilitators. And um, Don Francisco kind of lays into this Icaro and is really beautiful. And then it kind of builds in intensity, mm. builds in mm. cadence, builds in strength, builds in power. And, it's, and I can feel like I'm a bit of a pressure cooker yeah. and the energy's building, like something's building. It wasn't a purge, but it was like the energy just started kind of like raising and vibrating through, but it was a bit of a stuckness. And then he lays in to the, you know, I'm really high, so I may have, maybe I was biased, but it seemed to be one of the more long, strong Icaros mm. I had experienced. And then all of a sudden it reaches this crescendo and something lets go. And all of a sudden, the entire visual landscape opened up in ways that it hadn't since my earliest days, years before. <laughs> just the fractal beauty of what we know that kind of fractal landscape can look like. And I just felt whole and free and light and inspired and, and, and in awe and reverent. And also just like, what the heck just happened? And from that ceremony forward to this day, the visual landscape is available to me again. Mm. And so that next morning in our harvest circle, I wanted to know like, Don Francisco, what the heck just happened? And I knew that my Spanish wasn't gonna like communicate or, you know, so Matthew was the, the translator and Don Francisco essentially said that when he was singing to me, it, the Icaro wouldn't penetrate. And so he was kind of looking around and you know, the, you get these energy eyes, you can kind of mm. see the, the energetic field, we, the auric field, however we choose to language it. And there's certain trees like Lupuna Blanca mm. will offer like that, that kind of energetic, almost X-ray vision. And he could see, he could see the energy was like a, a, a steel plate, like a manhole cover over my kind of heart space, the frontal body of my energetic field. And he had to, the way he described it is he put spiritual dynamite underneath this manhole. And then when it was blow, when he was singing in, he was layering more and more around it. And then it came to a, a threshold and it just exploded. <laughs> and so he was able to remove that choke or that blockage. And one of the like uh, energetic forces of that Icaro was Jesus Cristo, mm. was Jesus. And I didn't know that Don Francisco had dieted the Bible for six months, right? So you can diet plants and you can also diet like the sacred texts. It's mm -hmm. just receiving an energy and information. So it's kind of like rising above that fourth plane astral mm -hmm. shenanigan into the fifth plane, you know, unconditional love, which mm -hmm. kind of like energetically may, may the fifth plane might kind of trump the fourth. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, and I'd worked with dozens and dozens of other 
teachers and facilitators prior, you know, between the first teacher and Don Francisco. And none of them were able to either see it or maybe I wasn't ready. And so with that release, it really helped me appreciate like, oh, that first teacher for me and everything that had happened between then and working and sitting with Don Francisco, that was all for me. That was for me. M much of that time, and I was also in a year of a suicidal depression right before I met you when I moved back from the jungle. And that was a hard reintegration because I couldn't deal with society mm. and just the way we live and our culture so fast and la la la. So all of that was a recognition because that whole time, that five-year process of what that was for me was the consistent prayer. And, and in my meditation and all my prayers up to that point was, I know I'll trust my power to come back when it's anchored in four aspects. And those became my, my hands and my feet how I walk in the world. Humility, integrity, reverence, and gratitude. Humility, integrity, reverence, and gratitude. And that became kind of like the medicine wheel of, of stepping back into power and knowing how to use that in a good way. So that first teacher for me was my best teacher in understanding that, that the shamanic path is a power path. It's not a mm -hmm. spiritual path. It's up to us to imbue our power in the world with spiritual virtues and values so that we're actually here to be uh, givers and not takers, you know, usually like a, a Daniel Quinn, Ishmael kind of reference. Um, are we here to support a harmonious society? Are we here to leave things better than, than when we found them kind of approach? And so it was a total reframe for me of, of, of moving from, and I wouldn't, I don't think in those, in those years I was necessarily working from a victim mentality, but in retrospect, it did certainly help me move from the experience like life is happening to me that life is happening for me. Yeah. And I can be a participant and then a student and then a teacher of the path. And so it was like this progressive process. So in my experience, even the, the hardest lessons that we don't understand why they're happening and we just want to like curse whoever, whoever we project is responsible for it. Life is still happening for us and we don't know the soul level kind of orientation towards our life mastery, oftentimes until retrospect, when we can see that the, the worst thing that has happened to us oftentimes is actually the best thing. And when our traumas become our allies, now we, be, we essentially become invincible. Yeah. This is the classic stoic approach. You know, the obstacle is the way that challenging mm -hmm. thing becomes our greatest you know, our great, the diamond grindstone that's forging the sword of our soul, right? Like this is the thing that, that supports us in that way. And it's, it's interesting. It like, it requires us to believe that for it to be true, actually. Mm -hmm, totally. And that's the, that's the funny part about the world is we look at these things like, well, is that true? Is it happening for you or to you? Well, it depends on what you believe. And if you, whatever you believe is right. Right. You know, that classic wisdom, like whatever you believe, you're correct. Totally. And that's how powerful belief is. Totally. You know, ultimately. And uh yeah, it was it's been it's been beautiful to watch you and you know, and learn from you and also contribute and be, you know, be your ally in every different way as we've navigated these waters together because you know, there's not a lot of people that I know that are willing like myself to go to go to the edge and the go way. like oh, okay, what's over the edge? And we talked about this recently. You know, we shared some ceremony space recently and I was in a particularly deep journey that was taking me all the way through the realms of hell 
to see if I could see the light you know, that was hidden in the crevices and in the shadows to see if I could see the divine all the way through. The guiding line was nobody knows hell better than God. Mm. God, the ubiquitous, you know, presence, the omnipresence and omnipotence of all things, right? That capital L love, the substrate of the universe itself, of course, it knows the darkness better than anything, right? Like, and so it it was like, it would have to. It would have to, and I understood, okay, nobody knows hell better than God. Well, let me, if I'm trying to walk the divine path and embrace our own inner divinity, which by the way, I have to say, anybody who's getting tripped about exploring their own divinity, it's cool, explore it. Recognize the divine in yourself. You're gonna get really fucked up the moment that you think that you have some part of the divine that's different than anybody else. Totally. Like, do not fall victim to that trap where you say, I've got something divine and you don't. And then mm. as soon as you do that, you're fucking lost. And you're going into a dead end ego trap. And that's very fucking dangerous. You know, so just throwing that caveat out mm-hmm. there, but encouraging that's everybody. Like righteousness. It is. It's a bit's the biggest problem. It's yeah. like it's not the biggest, but it's a very big problem is when you start to measure and quantify your own divinity and then judge that in ratio with another, you've lost the whole point of Mm -hmm. the divine that infuses everything. But anyways, that being said, as I try to walk the path to understand my own portion of this divinity that we all share, I'm really keen on taking the path wherever the path wants to lead. And it's been leading me into exploration of the deepest, darkest shadows and the deep and the deep points of like, how deeply can you look into into the darkness into the abyss and Mm -hmm. i remember i was i was actually i went to my own room and i didn't bring any of my i have my own shamanic toolkit that i've cultivated over 23 years i have a special rock and i have a special quiver of hape and i have my cinnamon that i've dieted in the way that we've talked about where i've forged connection with that i have my rose oil from another plant that i've dieted i have special beads that represent my dear allies in this 3d world and this and and beyond and all this but i i went into the room with none of it and i like went into this and and you shared a very interesting story which i think is worth sharing about about this journey into descent into the darkness and actually going naked and Mm -hmm. the importance of that Mm -hmm. i could have gone out and got that but i was already in the in the shit of it and there was moments where I would get really actually kind of scared. And when I would get scared, it felt like my fear was justified. Again, that would you believe? Becomes You're right. true. <laughs> you know, like when I was scared, it was like, yeah, this is dangerous. And then I was like, I have total faith. Then I was like, everything was cool. And I saw so I was working with that. Mm-hmm. And it was bringing me through the portals of disgust. You know, this idea that that which you are disgusted of, you're unable to see the light within it. You're unable to see the divine that's within that thing that disgusts mm-hmm. you. So it's showing me the most horrifically disgusting things, like unbelievable. Sometimes I just had to chuckle at just the pure creativity of the horror mm. that was appearing in my visions mm-hmm. and you know, making it through that. But there was this feeling and I felt really good since like the result. And always I think you can tell something by the aftertaste also is such a good telling of whether it was a, a fruitful journey or not is like what's the aftertaste Mm -hmm. like how do you feel do Mm -hmm. you feel more alive do you Mm -hmm. feel more in love but it brought me through and i remember us talking and you were asking like you know you were talking to me like 
you feel like you have enough support, I'm always here like as a true ally to the end, as a brother that you are. And I was like, yeah, feel good. You know, I feel, I know it's intense, but there's this feeling that if you could make it through that darkness portal, you could actually connect the loop of polarity. So mm. polarity being of a pole, imagine it like a stick. And that's how we usually imagine it. Dark on one side, light on the other side. But in actuality, I think those things bend into a circle. Mm-hmm. And if you can run the lap mm. where you can see the light and the dark through everything mm-hmm. and then run the lap and then make mm-hmm. that like a spiral, mm-hmm. it felt like this really interesting and and also, you know, somewhat treacherous path. You have to be mindful. Because I also got, you know, some some hits on the quote um, from Nietzsche, which is um paraphrasing, but it's, you know, be mindful of staring into the abyss lest the abyss stare back into you amen and so it was like okay be mindful but then it, then i was at a certain point where the abyss was staring back at me and then i was like well now what <laughs> you know like be lest the abyss stare back into you and i'm like okay <laughs> it's happening now what here we are <laughs> here we are here we are <laughs> we're and gonna so, have a conversation yeah exactly so it was a. Uh, it was a cool experience and, and of course was really grateful to have you and you know so much family there coming out of it and it um and you shared a story that was i think really really kind of potent about you know just the synchronicities that happen when you're when you're listening and in these journeys and mm-hmm. about um there was a a myth about a goddess mm-hmm. who would Inanna. descend into the underworld yeah why don't you share that share that story because mm-hmm. i thought that was cool yeah when i came out of there well, I want to also just recognize uh, your path and your journey. It takes a lot of courage and and willingness to go that deep into the darkness because it is a it's a deep rabbit hole, and it and it will bring up by design all of our greatest fears and our attachments, and it can and we can get lost there. Yeah, and so it does take uh, mindfulness. It takes courage. It takes massive faith. You know the the ability to believe in something without evidence, you know, like whatever it is that we believe is true becomes true. Um, so I want to recognize that for you and in in that warrior spirit to see what's here, um, because there is there is an adversarial energy mm-hmm. that is anti life. Yep. Because that's the natural polarity of the pro life energy, the creative force in the universe. There's a light side of the force, the dark side of the force. I mean, Star Wars, it was just like this mm-hmm. epic kind of like orientation of the nature of reality. And it takes a lot of willingness to come face to face with the anti-life kind of energetic, what, which we might call the, the adversary or the opposition. Yeah. And where it gets real intense, of course, is you have to see that is within you. Mm-hmm. We love externalizing the darkness. Yeah. Oh, this demon over here, or this fucking, this darkness that's outside everywhere else. But when you actually peer in where it gets scary is what it's showing you is a mirror. Mm. And I had this kind of download about this where this understanding of Lucifer as the light bringer, it's always this kind of strange language, like the light bringer. What does that even mean? This is the embodiment of anti-life of darkness of all of this. But what the, what the understanding was, it was, oh no, I'm just a mirror 
that is showing you the darkness that's within you, mm -hmm. the latent possibility of all of that darkness doesn't mean that you're expressing it, mm -hmm. but it's within the full spectrum, as full spectrum, entire polarity beings of the entire loop of all of creation, all of consciousness, all is mine, the universe is mental, the sum total of the conscious minds in the universe is one, all of this wisdom, right? It's like the light bringer is actually bringing you a mirror mm. so that you can see the darkness that's within you. And that's where you get the flinch because mm. you're like, nah, uh, uh, -uh mm -hmm. that ain't mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. No way. Right. No way. But it's there. Right. As well as all the light. Right. All the light, all the dark. We have, we have the seed of creation within us and the full spectrum. I love that term, full spectrum, like full spectrum medicine. This is full spectrum consciousness. And we have the opportunity to, to enter the gate at whichever shade of gray between those two polar opposites, right? Like one of those hermetic principles on polarity, the, the opposites are the same, they just differ in degree, Yeah. right? So this is consciousness, differs in degree. And the willingness to go in and honor that and see it within ourselves and become right with that become clear with that. Like we could enter the dark path, so to speak, whatever that means, distorted. It essentially just means illusion mm -hmm. or separate from consciousness. And that at the end of the day, it is the adversary. It is that darkness that is the actual honing of our light. Of our light, yeah. Just like the only thing that can really cement and deepen the strength of our faith is our doubt mm. the only thing that can really strengthen and um, empower our greatness is the opposition and so to become right with that and still to know how to find our way out because that darkness that that energetic thread goes down into countless unfolding opportunities to come into our great fear of annihilation. And so the myth of Inanna, when she ventures into the underworld, she systematically takes off all of her armor, her sword, her shield, all of her clothes. She ventures into the darkness, eventually becomes annihilated, and then eventually becomes resurrected to come back. Hmm. And it's such this powerful myth and it, you know, it's easy to, to glamorize it to an extent too. Like, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. I'd love to have a hero's journey. It's like, well, if you're wanting to have a hero's journey, then you don't really know what it's about because yeah. your ego is going to get annihilated. The annihilation is real. It's real. That's right. like, that's the thing. It's like. And the ego doesn't know the difference between annihilation and transformation. Yeah. Because it experiences them as the same. We go through this annihilating process process so that we can deprogram all of the ego constructs that we were imbued with transgenerationally, collectively, and then in our inception and how we were reared. We have to systematically get deprogrammed of all of those things to come back into our inherent nature. And that process is absolutely annihilating. It's completely disorienting. Mm -hmm. It's not a linear path. It's highly uncomfortable and it's highly inconvenient. <laughs> so mm -hmm. in our culture, we don't really have a time or a space for that. And that's part of the shadow side of psychiatry. You know, we have, we have reduced psychiatry in the mind to like neurochemical profiles of 
you know, twisting these little widgets in pharmaceutical medicine to expect that this is going to take care of the underlying symptoms, which might be the fact that we are products of a society that's a bit off the rails. Shit, shit. Even saying underlying symptoms is actually not necessarily what the field is doing. They're actually looking at clinical diagnoses of a disease in the DSM, which is a bunch of dudes around a table going like, is this a disease? And they're like, what do you think, Bob? Bob's like, I think it's a disease. Mm -hmm. Like, what do we got for it? I don't know. Let's put some pharmas behind it and let's figure it out. Like, it's a disease state Mm -hmm. almost. Like, so you're, it's this idea that you're treating a disease rather than, okay, here's some symptoms. Let's Mm -hmm. look at the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Let's see the source of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. You know, it just feels like all we're so focused on the disease classification that it's not even like, what's actually fucking happening here? Yeah. What's going on in your life? Like, how's your body? What's your diet? Like, what's going on? Yeah. What are you feeling? It's like disease state, rubber stamp this, and then there's a solution that'll fit that rubber stamp, except it's not working. We're just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. With all the fancy pharmaceuticals, we have no better outcomes than 100 years ago. If you look at schizophrenia as being like the bad boy, kind of, you know, the, the, the ultimate disease kind of presentation of mental health in our culture today, schizophrenia, our outcome measures today are no better than they were 100 years ago before all the fancy pharmaceuticals. When actually at that time, we, we tried the best we could do to keep people safe and then put them into work, you know, hands in the dirt, come back to nature, come back to like some degree of reconnection and schizophrenia and, and that kind of like that darkness of feeling lost is kind of the penultimate experience psychically of disconnection. Mm-hmm. Disconnection from ourselves, from one another, from known reality. But what is really happening at the deeper level of psyche, or we might even say soul, that's actually working on behalf of that person's evolved process of their own personal development and their own personal mastery. Like if we, if we think about in the known universe or multiverse, everything is on an evolutionary trajectory. Why would our consciousness not be on an evolutionary trajectory? Mm-hmm. Why would not our soul, the experience of consciousness before and after a body, also not have an evolutionary trajectory? And then we get into these philosophical kind of orientations to what does soul-centered medicine look like? What is the appreciation for a particular blueprint that we might come in with? Yes, we have historical experience. We might call that karma. We have the current experience. We might call that persona. Like triplets born into a family, they're all very unique Mm -hmm. because they all have their own unique soul. They have their own unique persona. And then we come in with what we're here to do, our sacred gift. We might call that dharma. Mm-hmm. So these are aspects of soul. And we can start to appreciate the fact that there might be something happening evolutionarily where there might be the, the trajectory of certain soul imprints to, to attain a certain developmental arc of learning and growth towards self-mastery where the arc of the soul's longevity might just include one lifetime as like a day, so to speak, in a given mm-hmm. lifehood. These, these trajectory experiences where we're constantly evolving our experience of unity and the, and the ability to see both light and dark, like as above, so within, you know, another hermetic principle mm-hmm. that it all exists within us. In the us. law of correspondence. In the law of correspondence. 
And and with that, it doesn't mean that we don't get to decide what we learn. There's so many ways to learn. And like our soul's like, how do you want to learn? You know, like which way do you want to go? Oh, pain teacher? Great. We got loads of that. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, trauma teacher, perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, love teacher, joy teacher, laughter mm-hmm. teacher, great. Mm-hmm. Have at it. You know, so it's like, how do we want to, how do we want to learn in this life? But also, you can't do it wrong. Is from a learning perspective. Now, of course, you can hurt people, which is where that's where you have to be mindful. Mm-hmm. That's like the only hard rule to the game of how you can really do it wrong is is malice. Is mm-hmm is buying into the delusion and distortion of separation, of believing that that person you're hurting is not you or that person you're cheating is not you living a different life. That distortion, I think it's a way to learn from that grandest, highest purview perspective, but it also fucks with other people's Mm -hmm. ability to have the sovereign choice of how they learn. Mm -hmm. And I think so, as long as you respect those boundaries, you know, like you can't really do it wrong. It's just how do you want to do it? Mm And I think people can get, this is one thing that I've seen in in relationships with some of the most spiritually brilliant and, and deep and potent, you know, people that I've ever known. They'll be in a relationship that just is not really serving them from my perspective. And they'll acknowledge the ways that it's not serving them. But they'll be like, this is my teacher. I'm learning through being starved of this type of affection. I'm learning through not being met intellectually or spiritually and then working every day on my forgiveness and unconditionality of love as I get continued affront after affront. And mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, I can't argue with you from a philosophical standpoint. Totally. You're right. However, there's lots of other awesome ways to learn where you're like, fuck, I love you so much. That was amazing, you know? And you can learn through a different path, you know? So it's like, we we can learn from anything. And in those situations where we don't have a choice, then acceptance is the requisite choice. Like, of course, accept it. But also claim your ability to choose how you want to learn mm-hmm. as much as you can. So mm-hmm. it's both. It's like, it's that paradoxical 100%. thing. Like everything is a teacher, but also choose your teacher. Just like, just like your original story. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. When I, right before I met you, I was just coming out of a dark time after I, right after I moved back from the jungle and I was in a dark moment, um, passively suicidal. Like it was just like the darkness was overwhelming. I didn't know this choke was in place and this blockage and it was also integration. And I was disidentified with who I had been and I was not yet who I was going to become very much the liminal space, Mm. this underworld process. And I was graced, I still don't know how, one day, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning book showed up on my little altar in my little tent. Still don't know how it got there. And I read that at just the right time. Wow. And to your point, Victor Frankel found himself in this just horrendous experience, didn't have control over the situation in a concentration camp in Auschwitz, had already wrote his kind of treatise on logotherapy, meaning-oriented therapy. And at that point, it was essentially Freud and Jung Mm -hmm. having these two primary kind of psychological orientations to therapy. And this was the third. 
And then he got the like laboratory experience of it, which was the concentration camp. Yeah. And he saw that through that process, those that were able to live through it found meaning in it. And not only acceptance, but also meaning. And the kind of summary statement, the summary quote in that book that for me has always been like the treaties for my life since then and now moving forward, the last of the great human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. And to know that he lived that, it wasn't just like some philosophical diatribe, he lived it. And I knew that we all are made of the same stuff. And so in that moment, he had set the bar. And now my excuses for feeling petty about my current situation just seemed like (laughs) trivial. And it was an inspired recognition. He became one of my teachers, no longer in a body. And he did through that book. And many others have written similar kind of treaties on our ability to choose our attitude and, and our experience and find meaning in it. So for me, the three maxims of living are number one, love is our blueprint. Number two, choice is our power. And number three, life is our school. And for those three, if I just try those on in any kind of like orientation, come back to the fact that love is the the blueprint of creation. And we're always just a little net positive against the adversary. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, this whole thing wouldn't continue. It would, yeah. Thankfully, we keep propagating. Well, we're not, and I think just to, just to bracket a little piece, I think one of the reasons why we're net positive is the adversary requires distortion. It, re, it literally requires distortion. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is the destruction, which is a necessary part of creation, which is Death not distortion. Death and decay. Yeah. Of course, the explosion of a star, all of that. That's, that's not distortion. That's just existence. Mm-hmm. But the adversary is the anti-life energies, the, the thing that tries to tear down that which is being built and that which is beautiful, not because it needs to be torn down, but because it just wants to. That is, it requires the distortion, the delusion that we are not all interconnected. It requires mm-hmm. the delusion of separation. Mm-hmm. So if your entire platform is built upon a fundamental lie, you're always gonna be a little bit behind a platform that's built on a fundamental truth, mm-hmm. which is that everything is connected. Mm-hmm. And that's why all of the stories say the good always wins. Why does the good always win? Well, it's got a platform that's built on truth, mm-hmm. whereas the other one's got a faulty platform. It requires distortion, and that distortion can be illuminated at any point in time and then all of a sudden it's like oh shit what have i been doing all this mm-hmm. time being the adversary mm-hmm. i've fucked it up <laughs> you know like whereas with the with the truth you know of course you can become distorted but the truth is like a is a solid platform and a solid pillar which is why i think it does win mm-hmm. in the end yeah which Good is why i have a lot of confidence actually in the way that the world is going it's sure there's lots of distortion here but distortion is vulnerable mm-hmm and the truth is, it might be hard to find sometimes. It might be forgotten or lost or discarded, but it's stable. It's mm-hmm. solid and it's mm-hmm. always there. Mm-hmm. And you look deep enough, you're going to find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. It's the constant orientation to finding our faith, orienting towards this, this radically empowered position that life is happening for me, not to me. And then evolving that kind of trajectory into life is happening for me, life is happening with me. 
and then life is happening as me. Mm. It's this wrecking, like we're the, we each are the center of our known universes. Mm. And we look deep inside the, the quantum reality of the known universe. The universe is expanding from every position simultaneously. Wow. When I first heard that, Joseph Selby wrote a really good book called The, the Physics of God. And that little pearl just kind of stood out like, wow, how can the universe be expanding from every point simultaneously? That means literally we are each the point of expansion of the known universe in this inception. Mm -hmm. And so now if that can become a basis of my new philosophy and my new way of living, then it's easier to accept my power and also yeah. my responsibility to your point. How am I living my life? To what degree of harmony, to what degree of service, to what degree of connection. And can I accept each of those adversarial experiences as also a teacher? Can I experience each of those shadow positions that I might externally point to and say are wrong? Can I also turn that dark mirror and look at it in, in, within myself, inside myself? And then it becomes this really powerful process of becoming completely responsible for our own lives and ideally having this radical faith that ultimately we're, we're winning the game, so to speak. Yeah. You know, like we've won the, the, the grand test or the big war. There's still battles to fight. There will still be adversaries and challenges because we're still in a body. And yet I don't want to get numb to the role that I have to play. My own small yet important role on the grand chessboard um, I remember I just had a flash of you and I playing three-dimensional oh, chess yeah. oh, that, yeah. that one day. For sure. Um, literally, that was a three-dimensional chess game. And um, can I accept and own the responsibility for my life to, to live it to the best of my ability in a good way, to have faith that um, what is moving through me at any given moment is actually in service to my greatest opportunity, my greatest becoming, my greatest evolution, and ultimately my greatest mastery. Yeah. And it's hard um, to continue to hold that, particularly in the culture that we live in, because it's so fast paced. It's so aggressive in many ways. It's so like the neurologic onset of the click rates and the, the speed of our technology. Our nervous systems have not caught up to the speed of our technology. So at times it can feel really overwhelming. And Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology is oh, the way I've heard it described. Nice. Yeah. Say that to me again. Paleolithic emotions, uh -huh. medieval institutions, uh -huh. and godlike technology. Wow. That's, right. That's the that's the spot we're in right now. That's such that's a, a soup. Yep. And as they said in, uh, oh, it's that movie with George Clooney that's about the Odyssey. Uh, fucking, you know which movie I'm talking about? It's it's a it's like it's George Clooney. It's in the in the Soggy Bottom Boys. Oh, yeah. Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, brother, where art thou? That's so good. Or he's up in the he's up in the he's up in the fucking window, and they're shooting guns at him, and uh, and he's going. Oh, we're in a fix. Damn, we're in a tight spot. <laughs> damn, we're in a tight spot. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the, the we're in a tight spot. Yeah, we're in a tight spot, and and what a glorious place to be, but, and also what a dynamic time in human history. And so that we also don't become numb um, to the degree of 
travesty and uh, mass shootings and like we become normalized to that. Yeah. And I think of Krishnamurti, um, he's kind of, kind of, kind of like constantly in the back of my ear. It's no degree of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. Mm. And so we yeah. don't want to become numb to the atrocities that are happening. Like, so how do we yeah. feel it all and still be buoyant right? and still choose our attitude? It's almost like you have to do it as like a empathy ceremony, you know, like put a ceremonial context around it where it's like, I'm going in to feel all of it now and feel it, connect with it, grieve it. And this is what I've found to be really productive is like, go in because it's important to feel it all we have to but we also can't carry it with us just like we can't carry our mushroom vision with us mm -hmm. in day-to-day -day life it'd mm -hmm. be overwhelming mm -hmm. you know or the, you can't bring an ayahuasca ceremony you got to go into the ceremony feel it all be in a place where you allow yourself to fully feel it open your heart to the maximum to feel the pain and then allow yourself give yourself the permission to close it back but I think people don't trust themselves that if they open the gate that they'll be able to close it or they just don't want to open the gate mm. because it's uncomfortable to feel it. But mm. it's important because that's the motivation that causes us to want to change things. If we don't feel it, we're not going to have any desire to actually change it. It'll be like, all right, whatever, this thing happened. Let me just worry about my next paycheck or whatever the thing is that I'm worried about. And then we're not going to have the the hot-blooded, passionate desire to change. We got to... we. We gotta connect, we mm. have to. But I mm. think finding that skill to put it in a place where we can go in all the way and feel all of it, connect with all of it, and then trust ourselves that we can put that back and wrap that back up and say, okay, that was my, that was my ceremony where I could feel the pain of the world or I could feel the pain of those who've experienced this thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I can't carry that with me, otherwise it'll pull me down mm -hmm. with it and I won't be able to exist. Yeah, such the dance coming in and out, getting in touch with the degree of the suffering in the world and using that as fuel and motivation to yeah. do our work Yeah. versus fuel and motivation to feel like, well, what's it all about anyway? Why should I even care? Right. Such the dance. Yeah. All this is, you know, all of this is about like, I mean, one of the things that my own foray into the darkness has really shown me and i'm not meaning that literally i did do obviously a darkness retreat which was literal darkness but and i'm using that in the metaphor being that the the distortion you know the hell realms and and being asked to see myself in the mirror when i looked through all of these hell realms and like there's something about all of us all of our identities we all want to be the good guy or the good girl like we all want to be inherently good right? Like this, this obsession with being inherently good. And I remember the first time I was disposed of this identity predisposition was the second time I sat with Maestro Orlando the dragon and this giant dragon with a head the size of a gigantic building made of, it was gray dragon made of smoke, comes straight down and looks over me and just looks at me and goes, you want power? And I go, uh, yeah and i thought that was pretty honest of me to admit at that point you know it was like i don't know is this the right answer is he gonna fuck me up and the dragon goes why and i go 
to help people. You know, the classic power four, mm-hmm. you know, power four mm-hmm. good things. And the dragon goes, are you sure? And then I like, without even, you know, any will, I jump on his back. It just happened. I just jump on his back and he brings me through this entire scan of my life of all the times that I've used power for my own benefit mm. or power over or power in these ways. Mm. And I was like, damn, I guess I want power not only for good, but also for me mm. to ball out at a fucking club or whatever Mm -hmm. whatever the thing it was showing me was Mm -hmm. i don't even remember what it was showing me Mm -hmm. and and it was that first moment of recognizing like okay like here's some aspect of myself that isn't all good isn't all saintly you know and there was but it was super important to realize that and i think in this journey like instead of trying to constantly scramble to pretend that we're all good to understand that we're very complicated multifaceted beings and to see that our that we have this dark capacity like for example one of the one of the pathways that it showed me is we despise the idea of sadistic pleasure which is the pleasure in somebody else's pain right that's the epitome of what we would call an evil Mm -hmm. action pleasure in somebody else's pain Mm -hmm. okay now imagine that you're watching a movie and there's a villain and the villain is massacring villages of kids and babies and they fuck with the main character and they kill his daughter and his family and they he's the most despicable villain and then he gets finally captured by the hero and they bring him in and then they goes and, and they say and your death will not be slow and everybody in the audience is like yeah give it to him (laughs) pull his fingernails out Mm -hmm. you know well what the fuck is that Mm -hmm. that's pleasure in somebody else's pain except we've gone through the journey where we feel like that fucker deserves it Mm -hmm. so like even something simple like that is to understand like we're capable of pleasure in someone else's pain and throughout history always there's just been a slippery slope of scapegoating that is justified some other access to sadistic pleasure just like the movie justified it in our mind when that when the hero says and it when your death won't be quick we're like mm. fuck yeah mm-hmm. well what if it was the jews that are tearing down our society or what if it was the witches that are in league with satan let's burn them or let's torture them what if it was it's happened a billion times where those things have been justified and then sadistic pleasure has been unleashed so, but to see that and to see that as a, as a capable human trait, obviously we don't have the ability to be scapegoated to that degree. Although certainly, you know, we've seen some crazy shit in the past few years, Yeah. but to recognize that and recognize and see those, those tendrils of the ability to be dark or evil within, within the self, it may be scary to look at that, but then it's actually so empowering to say, yeah, I see that. And I am going to choose my I am, my I am that I am Mm. is going to choose that I am not that. Mm -hmm. And I am going to choose something else. Even though all of this is available, available. I am going to choose this. Choice is our power. And that's that's so much more badass than being like, I just came out of the womb good (laughs) and I'm all good. And that's me, uh-huh. the good guy. Uh-huh. And that's just what I am. I'm just the good guy. No, mm-hmm. you're not. Mm-hmm. You can be, and you can choose that, mm-hmm. but it's so much more powerful when you're choosing it in full knowledge. It's like what Jordan Peterson says, like you want 
somebody, and he's particularly talking about the masculine, but you want somebody who knows that they're a monster and has it under control Hmm. and chooses how they show up in the world. You want someone that embraces that level of their power Hmm. and then chooses to be good. Mm -hmm. Like that's what what we really want. Uh, For sure. Because otherwise that those shadow expressions, they can they can grab the bull by the horns. You yeah. don't even see it coming. Yeah, it's like this the shadow aspect of um, spirituality and thinking that we've transcended and it's all love and light. Right, that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, you got, you got half of it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate what you're saying around feeling it all. Uh, it reminds me that my initial entry into ayahuasca was a prayer in a sweat lodge. Uh, I was going through a separation that would eventually become a divorce and I couldn't feel anything. I was just stone cold. Our mediator said, what do you want out of this? And I was like, I don't want anything. I just want out, I'm complete. And it just devastated my partner. Um, And I knew that degree of coldness. I didn't want to live the rest of my life like that. And I just happened to find myself in a sweat lodge two weeks later and I, I made a really concerted prayer. Like, please, please help me open up my heart. I'm, I'm really cut off from my grief. I can only feel a tinge of anger, but I wouldn't really even let that surface. And um, a buddy of mine in that sweat lodge who actually took me to the lodge, we had just gotten to know each other's friends, um, who's now one of my best friends, Andy Swanson up in Portland, um, he said to me, uh, hmm, I think you might be interested in a medicine called ayahuasca. (laughs) And uh, I found myself six weeks later in a ceremony. And sure enough, that one first entry, I still remember it like it was yesterday, that first entry into Aya, I knew that was gonna be a new trajectory for my life. And I did not know that the answer for that prayer was gonna be a nine-year odyssey, and still to this day to a large degree, but a nine-year odyssey of uncovering all the trauma that had shut my heart off in the first place. And so that whole whole Mm. answer to that prayer, which was just like the drudgery of going through trauma work, didn't sound or feel like it was the answer to a prayer because I thought opening my heart was gonna be love, and yet I was uncovering all this trauma. Yeah. And, and also appreciating eventually what you just said, which is the opening of our heart means that we feel all of it. We're not just selective for feeling love. If we're opening our heart, that means we're gonna feel all of it. The sadness, the betrayal, the rejection, the humiliation, the abandonment, all the core wounds of the soul and the, the, tr- the, the magnitude of the collective experience of trauma and pain and separation. So we get to feel it all. And then we get to self-select on what it is that we want to cultivate more of, mm-hmm. kindness, generosity, the metabolism of all of our trauma to eventually get to forgiveness, compassion, healing, and restoration. But we can't just jump to love and forgiveness without metabolizing the pain of the underlying trauma in the first place. Otherwise, we're just bypassing, which is a big shadow <clears throat> aspect of a lot of spiritual circles right now. Because mm-hmm. yes, it is love and light, and that's only a sliver. It's only part of it. Can we can we avail ourselves to feeling at all? And there's this there's also a, a sticky little trap of 
by defining yourself as other than, as separate than all the darkness, well then, of course, what do you do? You fight the darkness. And so it really locks you in this battle mm. where you're in constant battle. And I've seen this as well, where it's like, we're the light warriors. We're the fucking light warriors and we're out here attacking darkness. Well, you're just going to call darkness to you. It's an endless fucking pit. Mm-hmm. Like, let me assure you, there's plenty There's plenty to go. It so will never go away. Will, the adversary it, it can't. will always be there. It can't. It just can't go away. And, it, and I think, you know, there's myths that actually help point that way. One of the ones that I recently thought of was the, the fifth element, which is obviously a story that you can mythologize, of course. And there's this embodiment of absolute evil. And they say, what do we do? And we're like, well, let's launch our torpedoes into it. And they launch the torpedoes into it and it just gets bigger. And they're like, what do we do about that? more torpedoes (laughs) and then it just gets even fucking bigger and it's like of course you can't explode the darkness with violence with tools of violence Mm -mm. and make it go away it's just going to get bigger you can't vanquish darkness with no it's not it's not it's not the way it works Mm -hmm. but you can you can alchemize it by applying the highest level of love which is seeing actually and and they didn't do a great job of depicting this because it looked like when Lilu actually slayed the darkness it looked like she slayed it by this beam of light mm-hmm. it was like a superpowered laser mm-hmm. that destroyed it mm-hmm. when really what that would have been is her loving that darkness too and then the sparks of love that were hidden in the broken vessel and distortion of that darkness came alive mm-hmm. and the darkness realized that it was no longer it like the distortion was dispelled by the love that actually saw that kind of Christ-like love that mm-hmm. said, I see God in you too. Mm-hmm. And that's what le- unconditional love does. And then the thing would have evolved. Mm-hmm. And that's really like would have been a better way to do it. But I think for our psyches, we needed to destroy still. So we're very locked in this idea. And Avatar, same thing. Love that fucking movie. Mm-hmm. You know, but ultimately the the animals and the awa destroying all of the machines and the men is like not the way that that story is told best mm-hmm. and i think there's a book that you turned me on to the fifth sacred thing which actually tells the myth and tells the story in the way that's like a guide star mm-hmm. for our world mm-hmm. yeah can we see that darkness and say you too have a sacred place at the table yeah and, and stay with that and stay with that and stay with that. And in that story, that's the big schizophrenic moment where the agent of that darkness can't handle it. Yeah. And eventually. So in this story, there's the Southlands, which is dystopia. It's imagine like our world on steroids where they breed people just to be prostitutes and children and the and, deepest and warriors and, or warriors so mm-hmm. the, the men women, are yeah. just the warriors and the women and are other, just there's other there's other that objects. are like sadistic vessels that the the wealthy people use and it's, it's like imagine all of everything if it just went to its most absurd and insane you know trajectory where pedophilia and all of these things were normalized and and brought into and everybody who was wealthy had access to it and it was this whole very deeply dark and everything was bellicose and war and the soldiers were bred to be mindless and just kill and they interact with a classic utopian society of community and and ritual and support and magic and and really beautiful and it's a clash between both of them and as the soldiers come up the Northlands make a decision, a difficult decision that was, you know, 
debated hotly, even still, like we should fight them, but like we can't fight them, it won't work. And eventually the elders, the elder women in the, in the tribe, basically in the community, like we have to invite them for a seat at the table. And so they come in with all their guns and then everybody in a unified voice is like, you have a seat at the table. And the battle turns and it's a great book. It is a spoiler that I'm going to give, but it's important to illustrate this point because most of y'all won't read this book. But so I think one of the soldiers, they don't even have names. They've been dehumanized to the point. Like so 0157. Have, or, yeah, oh, I think it's 059. So mm. 59, I think is his name, but might not be that number, but whatever, you get the idea. And so 59 starts, you know, he gets kind of aggravated and he just starts shooting people. Shoots a woman in the head, shoots a child in the head. And every time somebody else takes the place of that person who is standing and says, you have a seat at the table. You have a seat at the table. Shoots another one. You have a seat at the table. You have a seat at the table. And that that breaks his psyche. It's the moment where he can no longer hold the distortion anymore. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes the, you know, he was kind of like the big rough and tough bully badass in the army. And then he becomes, when he lays down his gun, everybody looks at him like, oh shit. And the tide of battle turns by causing all of the military to defect to the other side and say like, fuck this, we're mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. And such a potent, potent story mm-hmm. that we don't see told mm-hmm. very often. We still are locked in the, you win by f- killing all the opposition. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's the most um, empowered ex- experience that I've had in a narrative in a storyline to show the power of our transformation when we keep coming to the adversary with love yeah. and faith and a recognition that we hold a position that is unwavering, whether it might be my, I mean, recently I went through a process where I realized my integrity is not for sale. Mm. My compassion is is paramount. <clears throat> and the the more complete story that you're describing in the fifth sacred thing is like our exalted position to become that which we know is possible. And we might also describe as like that's the inflection point that when we can hold that position against all odds and all evidence to say that, okay, if we're gonna if we, if you if I was that person in front of 059 and saying you too have a place at the table can i can i take that position from absolute faith that in that moment if my life too is in service to mm-hmm. this this transformative experience she starhawk in that book describes the full potency and potential of the transformative experience can i if i'm just one agent of that transformative experience for the other, then I know that I'm serving my role. Yeah. And I also have to become right with my death. Right, right. I mean, it, what that requires is it requires a bodhisattva level of compassion and, and awareness. I mean, it's not, it's, it, <laughs> it's no easy task and it's not applicable to every situation, right? Like you have a crazy person break into your house looking to kill you. like. I'm in my in my book like defend yourself because mm. 
it's not like a concerted collective effort. It's as an individual attack and every rose has a right to have a thorn. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so it's not saying like, no matter what, turn the other cheek. Well, sometimes fucking smack back, like establish mm-hmm. your boundary. But mm-hmm. from a collective, like universal understanding of how to deal with the darkness, I think it's universally accurate. It's mm-hmm. just specifically, occasionally, we have to make a different choice and then other choice is justified. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, uh, it's definitely worth meditating and I can't recommend that book more. Also so many fucking amazing things in there, like the, the love temples that ultimately rehabilitate, you know, the soldiers who had been indoctrinated in this other way and helping them reconnect to the nature of the divine feminine and Mm -hmm. like beautiful, you know, scenes that we actually went over a recent scene of that where he's getting bathed and he's getting the oh five nine is getting bathed and turned on. And it's the most erotic thing where he's being fed figs or whatever it is blindfolded blindfolded, can't see anything and there's this goddess that's attending to him and he starts to get hard and engorged and full of lust and everything he knows about lust is to then penetrate and then ravish that thing that he's lustful for and and objectify it to a certain degree right by like saying that you are the vessel of my pleasure not a divine you know divinely embodied portal Mm. you know like whatever other language you want to use he pulls the blindfold off and it's an old crone, like an old crone. And he's like, holy shit. Like I felt all this eros, all this erotic energy and I cannot objectify you mm-hmm. because you are, you know, you're, you're a crone, mm-hmm. you know? So it just like recalibrates everything and reminds me of another story <laughs> I heard from Matthias de Stefano about, I think it was Sumeria or they have an old culture that he remembers and when the soldiers or the, the warriors would go off to war, they would have to stop outside of the city and outside of the where they were returning and go to the love temples, where in Matthias's words, they would have the war fucked out of them. Wow. They would have the war fucked out of them. Like, you've been to some horrible, violent shit, mm-hmm. and now we need to basically, and you use the word fuck, but it's like- Cleanse your Cleanse vessel. you through Help you lovemaking re- and- eroticism and reconnection with your divine nature through mm-hmm. interaction with the divine nature of the goddesses that were present there, mm-hmm. priestesses. A return to love. A return to love, a return to Eros. Wow. So many things that we've forgotten in yeah. this world. And you know, I think one thing I wanna definitely get to is we, you mentioned trauma and trauma is like a universal experience to some degree, it just varies in degree, mm-hmm. not in ubiquity. Mm-hmm. And one of the really promising thing that's come online is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Mm. Like, this is a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. It's a fucking big deal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, thankfully, we've been graced um, with the privilege to heal. And I think about many of our ancestors, our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, et cetera, who didn't have many of these tools of consciousness and healing. And that's what I think about the, the medicine path in general, whether they're classic psychedelics or MDMA as an empathogen, um, Iboga as an onirogen, all these different aspects of catalysts. Onirogen. Onirogen. Yeah, Iboga is classically described as an onirogen, which what means a, mean? a dream-inducing medicine. 
Oh wow. Yeah. Um, because in the in the experience of iboga, it's very much a dreamlike state where you oftentimes have the experience of coming to the threshold, contact with ancestors, contact with lineage, kind of like I hadn't really thought about it before. Um, in uh, oh, what was that movie? Um, Black Panther, mm. right? When he receives yep. that soma and he crosses over and he goes and has a conversation with his dad, very much that's an oneirogenic process. It's funny because I, uh, <laughs> as I've talked about on here, I've I've gotten you know a lot of incredibly powerful growth, spiritual growth, and, and understanding from the combination of ketamine and cannabis. You know, which um, prescribed the ketamine, and of course. Thankfully, cannabis has at least been decriminalized here in, in Austin, which is great. Um, but I remember one day I had taken an iboga microdose along with it. Mm. And I was like, something is different. And it was actually a strong, it was like a strong, because I was fasting that day. So mm. the microdose was kind of like, it was a little bit peppier mm. than usual. Mm -hmm. I was like, something is different. Something I forgot. I forgot that I took it. It's like something's fucking different in here. Something's different. And then I go straight to a scene that looked like Black Panther. And it's like, yes. And it was like this just just, you know, African culture that was there. And there's this old like shaman, warrior shaman. And he's like, that's right. I've been here the whole time. You forgot <laughs> about me, but I've been here the whole time. And I was like, whoa. It's like, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Mm. Like I forgot. Mm. It's like, that's right. You always forget. Forget that we've been here the whole time. So it was like in the micro and also the macro of like, oh yeah, you're our ancestors. If we go back far enough, you're the cradle of civilization. This is where we all came from. Mm. And we can forget that. Mm -hmm. We can forget that, that that culture has been here the whole time and we can all trace our roots all the way back. Mm. And Iboga, like in that Oneirogen classic way was like, connecting me with that warrior shaman that was like giving me a stern lesson of like <laughs> don't you forget son been here and he's pounding his chest i've been here the whole time wow i was like deep bow it was like wow. fucking deep bow and i was wow. like all right right that's beautiful cool. description mm -hmm. of that oneirogenic process and coming back into contact with our ancestors talking about the cradle of civilization all of our collective ancestors yeah Iboga has that really unique fractal that consistently offers people. That's why oftentimes it's described as a crossroads medicine, crossing the threshold of consciousness over the arc of experience towards our ancestors. We might call that like in the medicine wheel, the North Gate. And it also has this fascinating experience of being able to, to cleanse our physiology and our neuroreceptors to the extent that many of the clients that we would see down at crossroads who may have been addicted to heroin or pain medications, opiates for decades would go through one treatment. And through that one treatment would be cleansed of that addiction with no craving and no withdrawal on the other side. Mm -hmm. like, there's no other medicine that quite does that on the planet no. like Iboga. No. And all these medicines have their own kind of unique fractal of potentiality and how they un unlock these unique gates of our own consciousness. Cannabis will do that uniquely. Ketamine will do that uniquely. MDMA, LSD, San Pedro, 5-MeO, all these different 
keys to unlocking these unique gates because we're all these multifaceted, complex iterations of consciousness. And as it relates to trauma and bringing it back to that, MDMA and this privilege to heal, oftentimes we experience in the midst of an MDMA supported therapy session or what I mean by that is like, there's, there are ways to use medicines recreationally and there's ways to use them therapeutically. And I've heard many stories of friends, family, clients, and others who have gone through an MDMA supported process and have had the literal experience that they were working with a molecule that they had never been in contact with before. Even if they've done it myriad times. Recreational. I've had that experience. Right. I've like, had that experience. Oh, wow. Recreational. My first, yeah, my first MDMA experience was in Australia with my girlfriend at the time when I was 21. Something like that. Amazing experience. Mm -hmm. Very like heart opening and opened up a lot of empathy and a lot of understanding. And it was great. But I was out at the clubs and we were doing things. I think I ended up like deciding to like eat a rose flower or something like that very erotic it was like oh yeah look at this everything bursting with life it smells so good and she's like you might want to chill out a little bit like <laughs> calm yourself and then yeah then 30 you know or 15 years later you know i'm 35 or something like that and i get led through a proper mdma dis assisted psychotherapy session with the blindfold all of that energy that was pointed outward pointed inward mm -hmm. to the heart Mm -hmm. totally different thing totally different and coming into contact with how mdma works is you'd be hard pressed to to construct a better molecule for trauma recovery work mm -hmm. because of how mdma works in the system it softens the fear center it uh accelerates our frontal kind of capacity our witness perspective and it and it, and it solidifies even more actively the areas of the brain between memory and um, like the story or the narrative of a particular experience. Mm -hmm. So we have a more full memory of a particular trauma with better witness and less fear. So now we can see it more completely because oftentimes what's happening with people with PTSD, whether it's classic PTSD, like soldiers on the battlefield who are in a experience where they almost die or they're they come into contact with just atrocious violence uh, witnessed or experienced first person and then to go through this kind of recovery process that the psyche's trying to work through but is stuck at the trauma at the point at which it was so overwhelming that the psyche couldn't take it so it walled it off but the psyche's always trying to work towards resolution Mm -hmm. So the resolution of that is the nightmares and the flashbacks and the constant re-experiencing of it, which keeps the nervous system in sympathetic overdrive, fight or flight, keeps the psyche in that fear response of feeling overwhelmed, but it can't quite get to resolution. So you have something like MDMA and in that therapeutic process, the internal orientation, heart expansion, oxytocin, less fear, greater memory, better witness. Now I can see the whole thing. And not only the whole experience of that one traumatic event, but also the associated potential reasons that that happened. More compassion for the perpetrator, more compassion for my position in it, more understanding of all the causative factors that led to it in the first place. So now I can work towards healing 
the trauma itself and working towards integrating that for full resolution, forgiveness, integration, healing, and kind of like becoming now a more complete whole self because that, that traumatized part has now been rescued and brought home. The, the, per, the, the kind of like the protective archetypal imprint that's been holding that trauma at bay because it was too overwhelming. I didn't know, I couldn't, it was gonna annihilate me if I came fully in touch with it. That protective archetype can relax knowing that now that that traumatized part comes home, I can actually in my more full, complete, mature consciousness, oftentimes supported with a therapist who's helping me work through it because I'm not just doing that on my own. It's, and I think MAPS has this well, um, it's the therapeutic process that's working towards resolution. The MDMA is just allowing it to happen more actively. Mm -hmm. It's not the medicine that's doing the work. It's the therapeutic relationship and the arc of processing it that's actually doing the work. The medicine just allows it to be more available. Yeah. And in that kind of like per perfect neurochemical interpersonal process, now we have the opportunity to bring that trauma home. And the reason I call it the privilege to heal is our ancestors, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, et cetera, didn't have the opportunity to work with these tools to heal their own trauma. And that trauma has been learned and propagated generationally. Passed along. Passed along. Just like a learned behavior will be passed along. All animals have learned behavior passed along. That's what helps us continue to evolve. So we've also inherited all of these trauma patterns then now we have the opportunity and the privilege to heal. So it may not have started with us, but it's still ours with the opportunity to be made right, made whole, and then liberate the future generations from not having to carry my own unmet needs, my own trauma, that the future generations can just be who they're magically imbued and embodied to be, and hopefully collectively help us re-trajectorize this, this floating water rock into a more sustainable trajectory. Mm-hmm. What is the what is the mechanism that allows people to I mean it's it sounds like a very much of a protective mechanism but so many people who've experienced trauma are unaware of mm. their trauma particularly sexual trauma or trauma that's happened mm -hmm. in your childhood I know so many people and through this medicine path have uncovered like deep particularly sexual trauma mm -hmm. but not always sexual when mm -hmm. they were when they were younger mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting you know it's interesting and, and it makes i've seen it so many times both with men and women you know don't think that this is just a uh, a female mm -hmm. thing it's mm -hmm. not you know it's it's absolutely not but it it's so it's such a powerful force that even myself i'm like Wait, like I'm all good here, right? Like, <laughs> what else don't I know? Yeah, is there some funky <laughs> shit that happened that I'm like that I'm not remembering? Right, because they literally will go from no recollection to sometimes a thread to sometimes, like the veil is lifted and all of a sudden they can see all of it. Yeah, a full trauma recovery process. Right, spontaneous. It was yeah. un unknown. Exactly. It was so well defended mm -hmm. that it became completely out of the awareness of consciousness. It's, it's a survival mechanism of the ego. You know, we're built to survive. The ego is built to survive. And when we come into contact with something that feels 
overwhelming and annihilating, life-threatening. It can feel so overwhelming to our psychic structure, especially when we're little beings and we're, and we're just the sponges of our environmental exposure. To have something that feels so antithetical to our sense of safety and um, wholeness and wellness of life, particularly if that trauma became, you know, at that moment, the recognition that the person that I was entrusting the most with my life, like mm -hmm. maybe mom, dad, or caregivers, or the priest, or whoever, my association may have been like that person's quote unquote God, or the supreme being, or the supreme kind of force environmentally in my life. If that person is now the, the bearer of my trauma, especially as a little being, we tend to think that we are the result and the cause of that. We're very egocentric as little people. <laughs> and many of us are egocentric as old people too. Yeah, never grew out of that phase. <laughs> Ideally, we become you know, more and more oriented towards the from moving from the me, mine, and the I to the us, the we, and the all. And um, it becomes less about us, but the way our psyche and nervous systems develop in those early stages, we are very egocentric. And um, when it becomes so overwhelming that like, you know, the supreme being in my life is now the bearer of such trauma, it, over, it can overload the circuit to blowing a fuse. And then at that point, it becomes walled off. And the protective mechanism of the ego comes in and kind of like puts that memory on, on the back burner, away in the closet in the recesses of the subconscious to be buried, to eventually ideally become made whole again. Um, but until we're given the safe space to do that with the medicines that allow the fear mechanism to significantly ratchet down in the midst of a safe connected environment and interpersonal process of radical support, radical love, radical availability to, you know, the therapist in that moment becomes like the external auxiliary orientation to self-compassion, just imbuing compassion where I might not be able to access it on my own. Because oftentimes those trauma, those deeply seated traumatic experiences have a lot of shame and guilt mm -hmm. associated with them. So when, yeah. when that gets to be brought home and then met with love, ideally in the context of a therapist who knows that trauma recovery process, then it gets to rewrite that entire narrative towards more of like a truth moment. Like Don Howard would describe the medicine paths and, and the medicines themselves as clarigens. Right? In that moment, we see the clarity of truth and how that trauma became to be and how we were just a part of this whole thing playing out. Mm -hmm. And now that, that, that exiled part, now we're talking more about parts work mm -hmm. or internal family systems work. That's the pr predominant psychotherapeutic orientation towards MDMA supported psychotherapy, at least in the MAPS trials. Mm -hmm. Like Michael and Annie Mithofer in those first phase one, phase two trials, the success rates were so good because they are so good in that therapeutic role. Mm -hmm. And they're so good, particularly with that internal family systems, which is parts work. We bring all the parts home, give them the talking stick and the microphone so that they can speak the traumatic experience into awareness 
be validated from their own position. The rescuer parts of ourselves just trying to keep us safe. Yeah. The traumatized parts trying to figure out what the freak is happening here. The sense of overwhelm, the sense of shame, especially if we think we're, especially if it's sexual abuse when we're really young, then there's like this perverse pleasure that we're also feeling shame about and so confusing. I had a, you know, I was able to sit in um, a really well-conducted, uh, you know, ceremony. Of course, these are these are underground at this point, so you know, not disclosing any details of that. It wasn't with you. If anybody's wondering if I'm giving <laughs> cryptic notes to <laughs> sitting in on one of your ceremonies, did not. It was not you. And I was sitting in, and it was uh, is a young woman who had experienced um, a lot of sexual abuse from her father, and there was, of course, an immense amount of rage. So much rage that the rage would almost cause her to shut down. So there's both rage and shut down. And she was alternating between rage and, and being like shut down and immobilized in that paral paralyzation, mm -hmm. the freeze impulse, and then the rage impulse. And then as, I, as she worked through that, and you know, she was really masterfully handled through that whole process and allowed to give voice to all of the different feelings and all of the things that she was expressing, she eventually got to a place where she felt like she had to share something. And she's like, I'm so ashamed of this. It's like, I'm trembling to even share it. But that when she would masturbate in her adult life, she would sometimes think of her father. And like that fucked with her psyche so mm. deeply because mm. somehow the wires got crossed of pleasure and abuse and all of this. And then the shame was actually hold, like keeping her trapped in mm. a lot of that. And, and of course the facilitators were masterful at not even flinching mm. at that level of shame and normalizing it and being like, like, yes, like all of this is possible and normal. And mm. like, there's nothing to be ashamed about, about mm. that. And you could see this just wait, mm. this wait. Mm -hmm just peeling off of her. Mm -hmm. It was like beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was just like, it was just tears just flowing. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, like that was possible. That's such a good description of the, the weight peeling off. That's what trauma is, it's a psychic weight. Yeah, and the weight that, and the energetic cost of holding up these walls, mm -hmm. they're walling off aspects of your psyche and memory. And then what's happening, the festering that's happening behind the walls is one thing. But then also the the energy required to keep a force field up, a force field impenetrable to our own recollection and perception. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of weight. So a fatigue is another thing that you see in people who have these kind of things. It's like, why, why am I always tired? Mm -hmm. My diet's good. I'm working out. Why am I always tired? Well, you're tired because you're you're. Well, there could be many reasons, of course, and I don't want to be reductionist, but part of it is you're you're powering a force field, mm -hmm. you know, and whatever else is going on, dealing with whatever mm -hmm. other wounds that are going on behind that but you're powering a force field that's that's a cost mm -hmm. yeah it's an energetic cost it's constantly running yeah it's like a, a program that's constantly running in the background that's just chewing away our like full life force psychic experience mm -hmm. you talk about this in this book a dose of hope mm. it's a good name <laughs> it's a good name because a lot of these the, the trials that MAPS has run on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, particularly for veterans and first responders, 
the inclusion criteria for most people in the trial, they might have expanded it, but at least when I was following it, was treatment-resistant mm-hmm. PTSD mm-hmm. or trauma, mm-hmm. meaning they've gotten a battery of different pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. 10, 12, however many it was, and mm-hmm. whatever other treatments that were available that were not MDMA all failed. Mm-hmm. So normally you wouldn't run a trial <laughs> with with people where everything else had failed. Like That's not how the pharmaceuticals run things, but MAPS is not that type of organization. Mm-hmm. They wanted to show that we're helping people that nothing else can help, mm-hmm. which is, I think, also why they've been, you know, gotten the FDA fast track status and gotten so much support, bipartisan support mm-hmm. from everybody being like, well, fuck, you're helping people in mm-hmm. a way that nobody's been able to help before. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really powerful and it is hope mm-hmm. for the hopeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. Yeah, thank you for that recognition. It's, you know, I didn't expect to be in this position. <laughs> um, I had been working with Aya for eight years, underground work, still apprenticing, you and I were doing documentaries down south. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of precipitated me coming onto the radar, so to speak, uh, was my oldest sister's suicide. And um, just her, her just like warrior spirit and heart that tried everything to, to rectify this deep PTSD that she had from her own childhood sexual abuse um we share the same father and we grew up in different households and in her mom's household a family friend or maybe a a family member in that household i don't remember exactly um because i I wasn't connected with her family at all her mom's side at all um had perpetrated this year-long years-long sexual abuse and she um, tried to anesthetize that with alcohol. And she had battled uh, major depression and alcoholism um, all as a consequence of this PTSD. And um, pharmaceuticals, antidepressants, AA, talk therapy, journaling, all that standard of care. Mm-hmm. This is way back when we weren't speaking so much about psychedelic therapy for trauma, or at least I didn't know about it. This is, yeah, nine, 10 years ago now. And um, when she died, I realized I can't just play from the sidelines anymore. You know, it was really like my call to action to be in an education advocacy position. And then I started exploring other medicines. Um, First got me into began because I wanted, she had such an experience with alcoholism. I wanted to understand the chief best medicine for addiction recovery, Iboga, mm-hmm. or Ibogaine, it's primary alkaloid. Um, explored that deeply and then went into MDMA therapy, wanted to explore that deeply, understand the research. Um, that eventually led to ketamine, explored that deeply and wanted to understand its role for depression recovery as well as traumatic brain injury recovery because ketamine is also very good for neuroinflammation related to brain injury. Um, So I started exploring all these different medicines and then realizing there's still so much to do in the education advocacy arena. And I wanted to be able to give people a dose of hope to know that there are medicines available. 
We're doing our best to fast track them to legal therapeutic use at scale. And, and unfortunately, we still have brothers and sisters that are dying daily because these medicines aren't yet available. Um, so we wanted to put the, the storyline into kind of an average person going through MDMA-supported therapy to kind of walk the reader through the process and also to shine a light on this, this more uh, contemporary appreciation for trauma, which is complex PTSD, which is um, classic PTSD, war experience, veterans on the battlefield, complex PTSD, more like adverse childhood experiences over time of early neglect, um, maybe not so direct sexual overt abuse, but more of like the abuses of omission versus the abuses of commission. Um, and these adverse childhood experiences over time set up the same kind of psychic structures and neurologic imprints that classic PTSD will do. So I wanted the, the re I wanted to demystify a little bit of the psychedelic psychotherapy so yeah. we could kind of show it in a storyline. Um, so as to offer a bit of hope to those that are really desperate and feel like there's nothing that's gonna be helpful um, to let them know that there are tools and we're doing our best. We still have a ways to go. Um, our nonprofit Thank You Life is kind of oriented towards that as well um, as a psychedelic therapy funding stream to support people into medicine work that wouldn't be able to afford it on their own. Because at this point when MAPS is able to push through MDMA therapy towards legal federal status, it's still gonna be ten to $15,000 per person per treatment series because of the three medicine sessions with two therapists and 12 psychotherapy sessions around those, it's a lot of out-of-pocket expense. Um, and at that price point, we're pricing out 95% of the population. Um, so can we, as, as maybe some of us have gone through the medicine experiences and come back to wholeness and said, yes, thank you life, thank you for my life, can I pay it forward so that somebody else can have that same kind of experience and come mm -hmm. back to wholeness too? Yeah. What would you say? I mean, there's going to be people listening and I know they'll reach out because whenever I talk about it, they do. And they say, my brother just got back from service in Afghanistan. He's really struggling or my father or my sister or maybe myself or whatever. Um, they're looking for something to do now. Mm -hmm. Like life is, they're in a waking hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, it's hard because like, I know what they can do, but they, they can't yet, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not available. And um, it's tough. It's tough to know that, like, I know, I know what's there. It's just, I can't, there's no place I can recommend you to go, you know? I mean, it, yeah, if like we were, deep family and i could i i know the underground railroad but i can't put that out online and i, I no, that's not the way it works you mm -hmm. know it's like it just doesn't work that way it's not mm -hmm. safe there's a lot of people taking big risk mm -hmm. offering this and making this available now so it's like you know what do we tell and then so of course they could just try to take the medicine that they find from a dealer and figure it out and maybe that would be productive but it's also it's dangerous waters to try and unpack mm -hmm. the trauma on your own without 100%. the guidance. It's not only just one therapist, it's two. It's a masculine and the feminine and they're 
it's a particular way of, of mastery that really allows these positive outcomes. So you can't even really recommend that. So what do you do? You know, like, and what, what do we do in this situation for people listening are like, all right, cool. This is going to be legal. And hopefully within two years, you know, I just read something from maps that, you know, Rick had put out and saying like, looks like we're about two years out now, but that's a long time to be in hell. It's a long time. It's a long time. So like, what's the, what do you recommend when, you know, the underground railroad option isn't available and, you know, you're saying like someone really needs help and support right now? Mm -hmm. It's such a good question. Yeah. Thank you for asking the question. Thank you for putting me on the spot with the question because it's an important one. Um, I think about the prelude of this question, which has been our conversation kind of up to mm -hmm. this point, like. How do, we, how do we find faith through the process? How do we find connection and community through the process? Um, so oftentimes in the midst of trauma, playing in the background, we get stuck in isolation and blame and shame and being able to connect to support the normalization of that process yeah. is key, is coming home to connection having faith that this process is important. It is a path. It's, you, it, it's one of the hardest paths to walk, trauma recovery, which is very much related to addictionology and, uh, and our like orientation. We have such a high degree of addiction in our society. And Gabor Mate, I think he's really right on when he says it's not the addiction that's the problem. The addiction is just a solution mm -hmm. to the underlying pain. Yeah, an attempt to solve the problem. Right. So let's not ask why the addiction, let's ask why the pain. Mm -hmm. And then to bring that into connection, um, he has a, a process that he's been unfolding called compassionate inquiry, which is the opportunity to connect around the pain, give it voice, have... Um, have enough of the associated practices that bring us some degree of buoyance and love and optimism and faith and be surrounded by people that lift us up. Be really conscious of how we speak to ourselves. If I'm using language that continues to put me into this subjugated uh, place of disconnection from my power, it's totally understandable especially if I'm having the experience of trauma. So it's kind of like we're, we're being our, our own internal coach. Like what would our future selves mm -hmm. tell our current selves if we were going through addiction recovery process or a trauma recovery process? What, what are the different ways that we can find inspiration and levity? For me, it was, it was reading Viktor Frankl's work mm -hmm. and understanding that he went through trauma that I will never know and many of us won't ever know. And he was able to find meaning in it. So to know that there's, there's a possibility for me, even though I might not be yet on the threshold of its full healing, I can still be on the pathway of my own recovery by anchoring to the best of my ability some degree of faith in the process that, that help is here, community is here, my own um, like uh, reclamation of my power is here. How can I access it? 
How can I come into contact with it, even if it's just for a brief moment? What are those aspects that, that bring me a little bit of levity in the dark storm? A little bit of um, inspiration when it feels like I've lost all hope? That's what I wanted the book at least to be, is just a little bit of a hope. And then an orientation, ideally to connect people with like-minded, like-hearted like experiences of going through their own trauma recovery process and having an elder and, and somebody to go to, whether it's a therapist or uh, a council or a collective of a fellowship that has an elder present that can help us reconnect to our feelings, move those feelings, find aspects and avenues to to discharge that emotion, like Besser mm. van der Kolk says in The Body Holds the Score, Body Keeps the Score. Can we move it through? Can we find breath work? Yeah. Right? Stan Groff, he moved from LSD when that became illegal to breath work. That's a powerful tool for a therapeutic process, a cathartic process. Can we find ways to express it, to, to, to continue to allow the, the stuck energetic to find its avenue, you know, this is going to sound a little cliched, but like to the light, mm -hmm. that, that dense, heavy energy, can we find that avenue to the light? Um, and it'd be, I would, it's not, uh, I can't not say that if my sister was alive right now and MDMA was not legal, that I would not do my best to help her find avenues for treatment. Of course. And if that meant the underground community, I would use every tool in my toolkit and every available avenue for healing available. And to your point, like how do we do that? Because it's a those are dicey waters. So it's kind of like um if I've if uh if somebody's been starving in the desert and I offer them water. No, first and foremost, I'm gonna offer them little sips of water <laughs> so mm. that they can rehydrate. If I offer them a gallon of water to reconstitute, that's actually gonna do more damage than good. So we're finding that sweet spot of having, having the opportunity to normalize the conversation of what trauma is and how much we are all uh, experiencing some degree of trauma, whether it's our own or the collective. And how do we have these kind of conversations and touch points with other people and find the ways that are called for each of us to at least start chipping away at it, become mm -hmm. curious, become available. And if somebody is, I really appreciated like you, you contacting the, the depth of a person's pain when you receive that email. And I've, I've received those emails. Sonia receives some of those and she comes back to me in tears and she's like, how do we help this person? Yeah. Like, okay, well, let's do our best. And I'm still a firm believer that our, the trajectory of our like evolution in consciousness has these um, superhero sign-up moments that just feel atrociously heavy and weighted and burdened. And it can feel overwhelming to the point that we wanna give up. And I've been there myself. And if we can make a prayer and we can really ask, okay, very much, I need help right now. Send me something, please. Whether it's a vision, an inspired thought, a connection with another, 
for me, it was Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning just graced oh. my altar. But it was because I, I made that, that prayer. And I very much believe in the power of our prayer and the power of our intention. And I know many people have been suffering for a long time in prayer and they're gonna hear this and say, I've been doing that. What else do you have? And um, my hope is that our conversation can just be another one of those answers that we know that we have available tools and in the long kind of trajectory of us healing the entire propaganda of um, anti-drug, your war on drug kind of like political motivations, even showing in the recent Netflix series, How to Change Your Mind, um, we're still rehabilitating that as a culture. Yeah. And we're all, we're all, we're all experiencing the downstream karma and negative imprinting of that propaganda. So unfortunately, we're trying to rehabilitate 30 years of lost time in psychedelic research and rehabilitating the political landscape. And it's very much why I appreciate you doing the work that you do and championing the cause and sending out this message to humanity of the right use of medicine work. And the fact that two, the medicines aren't here to fix us. They're here to just show us our truth. Mm -hmm. which is already the inherent wholeness that lives deep within. And we do need these catalysts for consciousness to, to spark that flame of remembering. And it can feel really overwhelming we don't, when we don't have that catalyst immediately available. So that was a roundabout way of saying, um, please, if you're listening and you're finding yourself in the darkness, May this conversation be just one little moment of optimism and hope mm -hmm. and make and and stay in the prayer. Yeah. Stay in the prayer. And a and a lesson about prayer is from Yeshua, you know, pray as if it has already been done. Because you can get stuck in a trap of praying from a position that reinforces your lack, mm -hmm. reinforces the opposite of what you are. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm so broken, I need help. Mm -hmm. That is the different way to pray. It's mm -hmm. not actually the prayer that actually creates it, which is acknowledge what is true, of course. You know, not you don't need to bypass it, but so it would be, I am broken and I'm going to get help. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I've, you know, thank you, mm -hmm. universe. Thank you, life, mm -hmm. for the help that is coming that has not yet arrived. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so, changing your prayers in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think is, is gonna make your prayer so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And then just to, to summarize that, you know, very beautiful way that you phrase everything. One, community, mm -hmm. find people that you can talk to. Breathwork is legal, available, mm -hmm. you know, and something that's extraordinarily powerful. Mm -hmm. um, ketamine therapy is coming online as well. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a possibility and a potentiality, I remember I think it was I think it was Rick Doblin himself who said that you know it's not as effective as MDMA in treating these things but it gives you enough space as a dissociative gives you enough space that you can actually start to work with some of these things if you have a good therapist mm -hmm. you can start to work with some of these things without feeling the pain and fear and panic mm -hmm. that, that it can bring up so that's another option um and you know most importantly, like just keep the faith that the allies, you know, Gandalf's coming on the hill, <laughs> you know, with the shining staff and the mm. orcs may look like they're going to overrun the keep, but just hang on. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you can make it just a little bit longer, mm-hmm. you know, all the tools will be available. And hopefully, you know, again, it's such a beautiful philanthropic endeavor, your thank you life um, mm-hmm. nonprofit that you're in the process of formulating. Um, <clears throat> but also, hopefully the government gets some sense and our and our insurance companies get some sense and this is covered by basic mm-hmm. insurance just like getting a 12 pharmaceutical prescription that you're on for the rest of your life is covered by pharmaceutical mm-hmm. care like if you really actually want to talk about curing people and actually you know ending this this weight of debt that mm-hmm. we continue to build in all of these different systems, how much we're spending on medicine that's not working. Like hopefully, you know, the, even the insurance companies themselves will be like, all right, well, this works out better for us in the long run rather than paying, a, I don't know, whatever, $1,000 every month for all these pharmas. We can actually cure people in three sessions. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually better for us from a business perspective and from a national perspective to actually fund these from insurance. So I know MAPS is working hard on that as well. So hopefully... Because we have to democratize healing, you know, fundamentally. Like it can't just be for a few. It has to be for everybody because we're all in this together and anything else is bullshit, Hmm. you know. Amen. Amen. I love you, brother. To the end, hermano. Till the end, brother. Always a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Anywhere else? I know you got, you're finally posting on Instagram. It took me like fucking eight years of (laughs) nagging you, but you finally got an Instagram that's doing stuff. I see little quotes that come up and things. Good job. I'm still a recovering Luddite. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's at Dr. Dan Engel, right? Yeah. And uh, any other websites or anything you want to point out to people? Um, Yeah, thankyoulife.org. As mentioned, Full Spectrum Medicine is our psychedelic uh, education integration platform. Um, there are the, there are a few other things brewing, um, but those are the two big ones right now. Cool, and a dose of hope yeah, available on Amazon. Yeah, and probably other places. But right on. Yeah, brother. Love you, brother. Para bien de todos. Para bien. I love you too, man. See everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Dr. Dan. If you're interested, please follow him on social. And once again, if you're interested in sitting with him in Sedona, check out fitforservice.com. And let's see what this death meditation he has in mind is all about. I'm actually excited and a little bit nervous. It sounds intense, but it's going to be an amazing experience as with everything that's going to happen down in Sedona with Fit for Service. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'll see you next week.